Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner has officially rejected the Ontario Liberals' proposal to run their party, what made him come to that decision? Well, he'll join us to talk about it. Canada's inflation rate slowed to 5.9% in January, but the cost of food continues to rise. But these increases going to continue? Well, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business will talk to us about that. And what are the five remote work trends for 2023? That's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, let's uh, talk about what's going on at Queen's Park. Uh, yesterday, a question period, uh, the Premier got, uh, well, taken to the woodshed more than a couple of times about some of the uh, things that have gone on in the last little while, not the least of which, of course, is the this ongoing story about the incursions into the green belt and the stag and doe and who was there and who paid for what, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's getting a, a little tight for the Premier. He uh, no, was noticeably a little testy yesterday. But in one of the other stories that we talked about a few weeks ago in this program, uh, and you heard this uh, right on our program, I guess, the, as we broke the news a couple of days ago, uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner has decided to stay as leader of the Green Party. He was being wooed by the Ontario Liberals. But uh, as we hear in this report uh, from uh, Matt Carty, it uh, looks like he's uh, he's going to stick right where he is. The Ontario Liberals have been without a permanent leader since its election loss last year with Stephen Del Duca at the helm. In late January, a group of prominent Liberals released a public letter urging Schreiner to join their party. Now in a video released today, Schreiner says he has taken the time to think about it and hear from the people of Ontario and he will stay on with the Greens. He says that despite being the only party member in the legislature, the Greens are making a difference. Building the Green movement and electing more Greens will make it clear that the status quo is unacceptable. Schreiner added that he is now looking ahead to the next election. I will do my part as I remain committed to working across party lines to put people, planet, and this province we love first. Matt Carty, Global News. A, a series of, of, of ramifications, because everything, I guess, in politics has a ripple effect, right? Uh, first and foremost, it uh, looks like the Greens are going to maintain their leader. It looks like Guelph is going to continue to have their MPP. Uh, but what about the Ontario Liberals? Uh, they're still looking for a leader, and a number of them, as we reported a couple of days ago in this program, actually signed a letter encouraging Mike Schreiner to cross the floor and become a liberal and then run for the leadership. Uh, we don't know exactly what the deal was, whether they guaranteed him uh, the leadership, whether he had to run with whoever else is, is interested in that. Uh, I guess we'll never know now, uh, since it looks as if that whole thing is off. Uh, but you have to wonder where the Liberals are going to be now, because they do have to have a leader. There's, there's no rush. There's no imminent election here. Uh, but you know, it's kind of a ship that's a little rudderless at this stage, and I guess that's something they're going to have to learn to deal with. Uh, let's go back to the, the principal involved in though, and that, that is uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about the events of the last six or seven days. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Oh, hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be on. All right, let's let's start at the ending here, and we'll work our way back just a couple of minutes if we could, and get some of the uh, the the rationales behind this. Uh, you announced just a couple of days ago that you are staying. You told us the last time you were on this program, Mike, uh, that you wanted to talk to your constituents, you wanted to talk to uh, well members of the Green Party, and also to the Liberals uh, in, in this fact finding mission. What did you hear? Well, Bill, first of all, I just want to say that, um, you know, I received a letter from uh, 40 Liberal members who I think had the courage uh, to reach out and say, hey, let's 
think about how we might do politics differently. Let's think about how progressive parties might work differently. And this was a letter from people I respect. And um, in Ontario right now, we're facing so many challenges. And the Ford government is really taking the province in the wrong direction. And I felt that it was an opportunity to explore all the options. And so that's why I said I would consider um, their offer and to take the time to consult with my constituents in Guelph and people all across the province. And what I heard back from people loud and clear is that one, we need democratic reform and electoral cooperation. I mean, the fact that we have a majority conservative government that was elected by less than 18% of the voting age population doing so many things that um, the majority of Ontarians are opposed to um, is a problem and a serious concern. And I also heard from people that the role I'm playing, the role the Ontario Greens are playing in the legislature is one that makes a difference. Uh, my voice and our voice is important, especially when it comes to, you know, the issues we've been leading on, like solutions to the housing affordability crisis, ending legislative poverty by doubling social assistance rates, and of course, uh, pushing on climate action, making sure our economy is ready to succeed in the new climate economy, and also making sure our property, our homes, our communities are, are climate ready for the extreme weather events that we're already experiencing. So there's a lot of stuff here that you've talked about on this program before, and, and I got the impression you know, all the times that we've discussed uh, your issues and, and the issues that are facing the province right now, uh, that you are, are you know, you're a loyal Green Party member. You believe in, in the policies. You believe in the direction that party uh, would like to see uh, the country and the province go in. With that in mind, though, Mike, why would you even consider? I mean, your first answer was no. And then after this letter was was delivered to you, you said, well, maybe I, I want to rethink this. What, 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 what gave you pause for concern here? Was there something in the letter that indicated that maybe this is where Mike Schreiner should be? Well, I think I, I received a serious letter from people who I really respect who challenged me to think about how the progressive parties might work differently uh, and how we might work together to push back against the Ford government. And, you know, quite frankly, I had a number of people reaching out to me uh, after the election. Uh, and I've said this publicly on many occasions saying, you know, Mike, you should think about running for leader of the NDP. Mike, you should think about running for leader of the Liberal Party. Mike, is there any way that you can take a lead role in building a united progressive movement? And so I thought it was wanted to take the time to consult with people in a public and transparent way. And, and what I heard from folks is that having a green at Queens Park makes a difference. A green voice at Queens Park as part of a strong opposition makes a difference, especially when it comes to pushing for action on the climate crisis, the biggest challenge we've ever faced. And so that's exactly why I've decided to remain as Green Party leader and to continue doing the important work that I've been doing and my team have been doing here at Queen's Park. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit political philosophy. And I, I guess we're kind of hypothesizing here just a little bit. But if you had decided, and, and you did you know, have some positive concerns, so you did some investigation into this, uh, from the philosophical standpoint, uh, I, I understand about the issues you just talked about with the environment, et cetera, but would it have been difficult 
impossible or comfortable, pick one of the above, or maybe you've got a third or fourth one, uh, for Mike Schreiner to lead a, a liberal party as opposed to the Green Party? Yeah, I mean, I think the most comfortable place for me is leader uh, as leader of the Ontario Green Party. And, and that's exactly what my constituents said. And that's the feedback I received from people. But I can tell you, Bill, that there is hunger out there for democratic reform and for electoral cooperation. I think there's a lot of frustration that a majority for the government elected by less than 18% of the voting age population are doing things that so many people in Ontario are opposed to. I mean, further privatization of uh, for-profit healthcare, the attack on the green belt, the plans to pave over our farmland and wetlands, this utter disregard for really bringing forward uh, positive solutions to address the housing affordability crisis, the climate crisis, um, the just disregard for, you know, people living in legislated poverty. Uh, and so I had to think about how I can best make a difference on those issues. And after consulting with people, it became clear to me that that's as the Ontario Green leader. But a, a, a stronger platform is, is is what every politician wants in a circumstance like this. And I know you said that uh, you know you want more green members in the Ontario legislature. Uh, right now, it's one, and that's you. Uh, you came close in a couple of ridings uh, in in the last provincial election, but, but there just doesn't seem to be an appetite to, on a larger scale to elect green party members. Is is it is it time for Mike Schreiner to think maybe I need a different approach to to achieve the agenda that I'm pushing for here? Well, I think that uh, one of the things I heard from people is that one green voice at Queen's Park is making a difference, that the voice Greens have through me at, at Queen's Park, pushing the envelope, especially on addressing the climate crisis. And, and you know, this is an economic, environmental, fiscal and quality of life issue that really affects all parts of, you know, people's lives in this province. And having that strong voice, particularly focused on addressing the climate crisis is so important. And yes, um, having more green MPPs would certainly give us a bigger voice. And that's why I'm gonna continue to work hard to build the green movement, to um, do the work necessary to earn the trust of voters uh, because our voice does matter here at Queens Park. Just to go back, I want to go back to the letter if I could. And and we know some of the people who signed on it because they've been quite open about, you know, their desire to, to try to get you over onto the other side of the of the of the legislature. Uh, were there any promises made, any commitments made, or was it just, hey, we'd like you over here? Well, I mean, in the in the letter itself, there was a public commitment that um, if I did decide to make that decision, that the the signatories to the letter would would support me and, and get behind a campaign for me. Uh, and so, you know, they were very open and clear about that. I mean, I, I really respect people who have the courage to reach out and say, we need to improve our democracy. We need to re-engage and re-motivate voters, especially after, you know, the last provincial election where you had record uh, low voter turnout. And would you consider how progressive parties might work differently? And I think about my approach and the green approach to politics to put 
you know, people, uh, planet and province ahead of partisan politics. The work we do around cooperation and collaboration across party lines, for me, not to take a moment to engage in this conversation, to open up and consult with people about it, um, I don't think would be in line with the Green Party's approach to politics. And so that's exactly why I did it in an open and transparent way. And what I heard from my constituents in Guelph and from others across the province is that I can best be effective as the Ontario Green leader, advancing the issues that Greens have been pushing to put into the mainstream of Ontario politics. In the interim, it's only been a couple of days now since you made your announcement. Uh, have you heard from any of those Liberals that were attempting to woo you into the party? Uh, and is your uh, thanks but no thanks uh, final? Oh, it's final. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, staying as Ontario Green Party leader. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think what this conversation has opened up is an opportunity to talk about democratic reform. And that can happen in a number of ways. Why not um, re-engage a citizens assembly to look at uh, how we might change our electoral system to strengthen our democracy? Let's look at things like, should we lower the voting age? Should election day be a civic holiday? There's a whole host of democratic reforms that I think are necessary uh, to increase voter turnout and to re-engage people in the political process. And I think that's really important. And I want to compliment uh, the signatories to that letter who have really opened up this conversation. And that's one of the reasons I said I would take some time to consider and consult. Practically speaking, though, Mike, you've mentioned electoral reform a number of times here in this conversation. Uh, what are the chances of that happening? I mean, there's only been one referendum on that over the last number of years, and that was by the McGuinty government, who, by the way, were a majority government at that time, and it crashed and burned. It did not go well when they had that referendum. Uh, I don't get the sense that Premier Ford nor anybody in his uh, caucus is is deeply interested in looking at electoral reform. So is this just a political pipe dream at this stage? Well, I think it's a conversation that many voters want to have, and it's one that I'm hoping that as the Ontario Green leader, I can engage in with the new leader of the NDP and who will eventually lead the Liberal Party. Um, I think a lot has changed in the last 15 years uh, since there was a referendum on this issue. And, and I think there is hunger, hunger to bring in democratic reforms uh, to reverse this trend that we're seeing uh, in Ontario of declining voter turnout in, in each election. And I'll also say, uh, Bill, it's also important for politicians like myself to think about how we might do things differently to engage and inspire more people to participate in the political process. Well, uh, we'll see what happens going forward on this, uh, especially with the uh, rather aggressive agenda that uh, the Ford government is uh, apparently putting in front of you on this session. And uh, next conversation, Mike, will we'll be about those issues. But we do appreciate you taking the time for this today. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Anytime, Bill. Mike Schreiner, who is staying as Ontario Green Party leader and uh, is uh, saying thanks but no thanks to the Ontario Liberals for a shot at uh, running as their leader. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Statistics Canada says headline inflation was down from 6.3% in December, noting the annual inflation rate will continue to slow in the coming months. 
The last time inflation was below 6% was in February of last year, when it was at 5.7%. The headline rate came in lower in January than many commercial banks were anticipating in their forecasts, signaling good news for the Bank of Canada. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Lisa Laporte. So that's supposed to be good news for us. I mean, we know that we're battling inflation. We know that's why the Bank of Canada is doing what it's been doing over the last couple of months. Is it effective? And and what are the ramifications, both short-term and long-term? <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Uh, to talk about this, so pleased to welcome back to the program Marvin Ryder, the business professor at the Grouch School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, great to have you back on the program. Uh, this is good news, isn't it, that we've had, a, a, I guess, a, a bigger decline in inflation rate than we thought we were going to get? Well, no one ever knows these things for sure, Bill, but what we key first word is that it declined, that we're going in the right direction. We have momentum now, rather than momentum going up, but momentum going down. Also, we just crossed a, a mental checkpoint. We went from something in the 6% range to something in the 5% range. And not only did the headline inflation, that's we call it the all-in inflation number go down, but so did core inflation. Uh, and so that again says that everything's going in the right way. Now, why is this all important? Uh, very soon on March the 8th, on Wednesday, March the 8th, Bank of Canada revisits its interest rates. I am not anticipating any cut in the interest rates, but also because of this news, I'm not anticipating any more increase in the rate of, uh, from charged by the Bank of Canada. So if you have a mortgage, yes, I realize you're hurting. I realize the carrying cost has gotten higher. But here's the bit of good news, it's not going to get higher. And I think it's even possible at the rate it's starting to go down that we may see some interest rate cuts by the end of this year. Yay, <laughs> it's about time. Uh, listen, as I was listening to, to some of the experts talk about this yesterday when the announcements and the numbers came out, uh, they concurred, obviously, with what you just told us, that uh, that inflation is going to continue to slow. But they, they cited something called base year effects as, as one of the reasons for that. What are we talking about there? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. You have to you have to always compare the inflation in this year to some other points. So when you compare it back a year or you compare it back two years, um, you know, it doesn't mean that prices have gone down. So when I say to you that inflation has gone from 6.3% to 5.9%, prices are still up. And, and the best example of that is not general inflation, but food inflation is still running at this point at around 10%. Again, that's not a shocker to me because in January, this is when we have to import lots of fresh fruit and vegetables because Canada's are not available given the winter. And so we're still seeing nearly 10% inflation in food. There's still a lot of work to go in this battle, Bill, uh, and no one should think we're, we're over it. But if we pay attention to the time of the year and if we pay attention to what things were like a year ago, again, it's still moving in the right direction. How are we doing? I mean, there are a number of elements that uh, that you've talked to us about in the last uh, few months here, about uh, factors which are contributing to to the problems that we're facing right now. One of them was supply chain. Uh, is is that improving? Is 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 that still a concern? Yeah. So I, everyone called it supply chain, but to me, it was just an imbalance between supply and demand. <clears throat> when COVID ended, we thought it would take a while for consumers to get back to their old spending habits, and a while turned out to be about six weeks. So suddenly businesses were hit with demand for products and services and they just weren't producing in that volume. So it takes them a while to get back at it. You'll remember the problem we had with lumber. Uh, you can't just create lumber out of thin air. You gotta cut down trees, you gotta dry it, you gotta do this. It takes a while to get the lumber supply 
back to a certain level. We've seen lumber getting back to normal. We're beginning to see computer chips getting back to normal. We're beginning to see cars getting back to normal. They're not quite there yet. So that's why they are still fueling some of the inflation that you're seeing. But yeah, the world is starting to adjust in this post-COVID case. And um, I think now the only question we've got is China. China itself was locked down for most of 2022. As only a totalitarian state can, they lock people very much in their cities, and that really cut Chinese spending. Now, the question is, when is that going to bounce back? We know the Chinese saved a lot of money last year, and we know that they do like to consume. So when do we see that impact on the supply chains? But generally speaking, in North America anyway, we are pretty much back to normal. Well, let's talk about uh, what's going to happen going forward here. And, and one of the things I'm always intrigued about is uh, the Bank of Canada policy. And, and Tiff Macklin was pretty you know, straightforward about this. Is, Look, at this is how we beat inflation and it's interest rate hikes. And God knows we've seen enough of those over the last little while. Or have we? As you mentioned, we'll find out, I guess, next week. Uh, but I, I guess the question I'm going to probably ask every time we see these uh, new sets of numbers, Marvin, is the Bank of Canada policy actually driving this down, or are these just uh, natural occurrences uh, in in this economic cycle here? Because you told us, and Macklin's told us in the past, that, well, it could take anywhere from 12 to 18 months for these to sift right through the economy and have an impact. We're nowhere near that yet, yet we are starting to see, I think, some positive, well, positive negative growth, if that's a, an economic phrase I can use. Sure. Well, uh, Bill, um I would be lying to you if I said that Tiff Macklem is completely in control of the Canadian economy and a global world. We're all reliant on one another. Um, so we're also seeing inflation decline, I guess is the word I'm looking for, in places like uh, England, in places like the United States. Now, again, the G7 nations would love to have Canada's in, uh, inflation rate. <coughs> They've been battling much higher inflation. And they're also by, uh, battling higher energy costs thanks to Russia's work in Ukraine, and none of that has really changed. So, But it is true that around the world, inflation is coming down, so we're benefiting both from domestic policies led by Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada, but also what's going on in the rest of the world. And barring, barring some major upset, and I always have to put that asterisk out there, if Mr. Putin woke up tomorrow and said, you know, I, I think this would be a great time to invade Lithuania, or if he said this would be a great time to fire off a short-range nuclear weapon, well, I, I'd say we'd have economic turmoil all over again. But barring something like that, the global forces are going in the right direction, the domestic forces are going in the right direction, and, and I think we may win this battle. In fact, I think we may even win this battle faster than Tip Macklem has said. Remember, again, a great story in life is to under-promise and over-deliver. <laughs> if I tell you it's going to take me 18 months and I solve the riddle in 12 months, you think I'm a hero. If I told you 12 and it actually takes 15, I look like a goat. So I, I think, again, you'd look at Mr. Macklin's comments and realize he's being conservative in those estimates. Uh, and as you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, food prices, higher food prices aren't, aren't going to change uh, dramatically anytime soon. Uh, but you just touched on the, on the global economic scene here. And uh, the other concern is gasoline prices, which have been fluctuating crazily over the last couple of weeks, especially. I think it's down this morning, but uh, who knows you know, what's going to happen by the time I get off the air at noon. So, And that's crazy. From what Mr. Putin was saying and what President Biden was saying over the last 48 hours, uh, the war in Ukraine is not going to end anytime soon. Is, is, is that going to be an ongoing concern? And is that going to cause these wild fluctuations in, in gasoline prices? 
Well, I'm going to say yes, but it, but it's not the sole reason for this. The, you know, the biggest driver of, around oil and therefore gasoline prices remains OPEC, the cartel. Mm -hmm. uh, OPEC has made it very clear that they love seeing oil at $70 a barrel, and they'd love to see it at $80 a barrel, and if they could, $90 or $100 a barrel. You know, you and I don't want to see that at all because that means pump prices go up. So uh, depending upon the day, the week, the month, uh, you've got these different forces in play. You have the general problem about Russian oil and Europe being highly dependent on Russian oil and now having to find alternate energy sources. But you're also seeing an organization like OPEC saying, well, we, we don't want uh, oil prices to fall to $50 a barrel, $60 a barrel. We don't want you to have gasoline at $1.20 a liter. Uh, and so they are also doing their work behind the scenes by adjusting their supply. In essence, they just turn on the tap a little more or turn off the tap a little bit more from what they pump out of the ground and they can have a huge difference. Now people say, well, I thought Canada was self-sufficient in energy. And the answer is actually, yes, we are. Uh, we export far more than we import when it comes to oil, but you pay the same price for Canadian oil as you do for world oil. There is no discount. If there was, an enterprising Canadian would buy cheap Canadian oil and then flip it around and sell it on the world market. It just makes no sense to do that. So we are highly reliant on what happens on world prices. Well, uh, it's a little bit of good news, and I guess a little bit of good news is better than no good news, and uh, we'll take it at that and see what happens in the next couple of days. Marvin, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate your time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The survey by Cisco Canada indicates that while employees increasingly expect flexibility, employers continue to see hybrid work arrangements as a perk. Flexibility emerged as a top priority for workers in the survey, second only to salary. The survey also found most employers are tightening hybrid work policies and bringing in mandatory office days, considering hybrid work as a benefit, while employees feel like it's expected. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So has a new day dawned in the uh, in the way in which we work and where we work? Uh, I know they talked about it a lot during the pandemic, uh, but is it going to be a reality and is it going to be something significant going forward? Let's bring our next guest into the conversation to uh, get some opinions on uh, his thoughts on this. Michael French is the National Director for the Robert Half Canada Organization and uh, talking about this and the expertise in this. Uh, and, and first of all, Michael, I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm always intrigued by this because, well, let's face it, a lot of people thought, well, okay, these are words and, and you know, the, the remote working that uh, was instituted in many circles uh, was because of necessity. It was not because employers were saying, you know what, let's try this. I think this might be more beneficial. Uh, because in the past, of course, pre-pandemic, uh, just about every time anybody said, I, I'd like to work from home more often, it's, nope, not it happened. Don't even think about it. Uh, you know, pr productivity will go down. You'll spend most of your time just sitting there watching prices right on TV and not getting your work done. I, now, we've known that's uh, not true anymore, but is everybody on the same page now that this might be a viable option going forward? Well, Bill, I was one of those leaders who was saying, no, no, you're going to watch prices right before COVID. And unfortunately, um, or maybe fortunately, I've been proven wrong. And so I can tell you this, remote work or hybrid work is here to stay. When we surveyed, and you know, we've, we've been talking about sort of work and work trends for a very long time, 75 years. And we now survey on specifically just on remote. And so when we asked professionals, what are you looking for? 
85% said at minimum, they're looking for hybrid, which is sort of maybe it's two days, maybe it's three days, but they said at minimum hybrid. And then on the company side, we're seeing one in four companies offer fully remote. So somewhere in there is that balance where they're finding what they're looking for. So we have 85% saying they want at least hybrid and one in four, 25% of the company saying, well, we're going to offer fully remote. So they're still above that are the ones that offer hybrid, but it's um, definitely now we're seeing companies say, well, you know what, let's mandate a certain number of days. We hear it from all the big ones in the States. We hear it from many in Canada. So we're headed back there for sure on some kind of hybrid, the number of days in the office. Okay, let me play devil's advocate here if I could. For those companies that are saying, well, the, we've got to mandate some days in the office, uh, my immediate question is, why? Well, is is well, it because you know, you're paying huge amounts of rent and you want to justify it or because you really think they can be more productive there? That's a really good question. And I think, you know what, we're the, the economy now, we're starting to feel some headwinds. There was, you know, I'm not an economist, but there's been talk of recession. I think companies immediately go to, well, let's, Let's sort of go back to uh, an old proven strategy in the office. We'll manage culture. We'll, we'll manage productivity. We'll manage collaboration. So that might be a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. I think we're still going to settle somewhere, maybe in a year, a little bit lower than that, where they're, where they're mandating maybe less. But I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about how good we are when we actually are face-to-face -to -face together. But then we have people saying, but I'm just productive at home. There is a bit of a push and pull here, and we're in a very interesting place. We've never, ever been more connected, but we're coming off of several years being very separate, but being able to see or talk with very convenient tools. You look at sort of MS Teams or Zoom, all the different collaboration tools. So there's a lot of push and pull happening here. It's a very dynamic time to be in the market. Well, and I think, you know, we've, I, we're, we we adapted, don't we, Michael, a lot of the times? And, and you know, I, I've over the years known a few people that have, well, they're self-employed. So, you know, they, they make their own hours and I guess more often than not, they work from home. Uh, and, and one good friend of mine said, you know, it takes a lot of discipline. You really have to just say, okay, I got to shut up the whole world. And it's just like a regular work day. Uh, you know, you get showered, get dressed, have your breakfast, then you go into the office, even though it might just be across the hall. Uh, but it's important to do that and, and to put in the time. And it, maybe not everybody can do that, but we were forced to do that because of the shutdowns of the pandemic. Uh, and I, I, it, it was, it was, a tough, a very sharp learning curve, but I think a lot of us have adopted quite well to it. I think you're right. I think we've proved to many, to ourselves and our companies that, my goodness, we can do it and we're very good at it. You know, it's with overnight, I think it was almost three years ago, um, maybe middle of March, the premier said, work from home whenever you can. And we all did it and we were all very, very good at it. So it, it can be done, but I know there is lots of sort of C-suite boardroom talk on, well, what about our culture? What about our collaboration? So, you know what, it, it is something that definitely is on the, on the front of minds of people. And there's a bit of talk about productivity, what happens if we're not together, but it's that fear of collaboration and, and culture. We are that culture, a, a culture of a company. We've got a lot of vested into it. That's what makes us special. There's a lot of, a lot of, um, concern there. But then we have people saying, here's what's really interesting. We're saying, well, you know what, if, if, if we are remote, I'm willing to flex on some salary. And one in four workers said that they would be willing to take a lower salary of around 16% if I had a lot of flexibility on when I wanted to work. So that's significant as well. 
Well, because there's a number of costs that come into play here, aren't there, Michael? I mean, if, if you know, you're living in one part of the city or even in another town, you know, outside of the, of the downtown, maybe or your office or your place of employment is, uh, there's commuting costs. Uh, you, if you're taking public transit, there's that cost. If you're not taking public transit, you're probably paying for parking someplace. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there, there's, uh, there's, you know, okay, clothing for work. Do I have to wear a suit? Do I have to, you know, business attire, that sort of thing? And a lot of those costs, if not, you know, eliminated, are at least going to be, you know, downsized considerably if you're working from home all the time. So I, I can understand there's going to be some flexibility there. And because and, I'm hearing both sides of this, and I'm sure you are with your research, Michael, that some people are saying, right, maybe I could, you know, take a little less money if that's what the negotiation is going to be. But I'm hearing the other side of the coin is, is look, at, if you don't accommodate my wishes, I'm out of here. I, you know, I'll go find a place that will take me with these hours. For sure. The job market is hot. Um, every second person right now from a research is looking and every second manager is trying to hire. So the job market is exceptionally hot. And there are many organizations that are willing to offer a lot of flexibility because they know to attract the very best talent, they need to be exceptionally flexible. And that means offering remote. That means offering also flexibility, maybe they're offering four days a week, maybe they're offering four tens. And so imagine being a company saying, well, no, you got to come to the office, you got to work nine to five, and you're now going to attract not the very best, not the second best, maybe you're going to attract the third best employee, and your competitors are going to get the best, the very best. Do you want to be that person who is trying to hire and your best option is the third best? Um, that'd be a hard place to be if you're trying to compete. Well, especially because, as I say, it's been so long. This has not just been like a four or five week experiment. Uh, this has been going on three years now, and and people, I think, just as as mentioned earlier about our adaptability, uh, this is the comfort level now. This is this is the new normal for a lot of people. This is the new normal. This is what's expected. We're also seeing it very hard when client when client calls saying, "Hey, I need to hire," and here's here's what it is. It it uh, it's five days a week. It's in the office. We start telling them about, well, then let's talk about what you're offering. And that usually comes down to enormous, enormous salary to attract someone. There are people who go to the office, but now they're commanding more money because they know that pool is getting very, very small. The other thing that I think has to come in here, and you touched on it I think, at the beginning of our conversation, is technology. Uh, if, if this, God forbid, had happened in, in the 1970s or even in the 80s, I guess, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. Uh, we did not have the the capability electronically, uh, technologically, to be able to do these sorts of things. Uh, you know, you mentioned Zoom and, and and Teams and all these other platforms that are available right now to hold still hold meetings. Uh, it's not just you know teleconferences anymore. Uh, you know, we, we can broadcast, we can do all sorts of things uh, because of the technology that's available right now. And and I guess the question here is. I, I think we were told even back in those days, that's where we're going to be headed. You know, it's, it, it, futuristically, there's going to be more people working from home because the technology was there. Well, that was accelerated, like so many other things because of the pandemic. Uh, it probably wasn't going to happen as quickly as it did, but it had to. So we've done that. And now we're comfortable with it. And we say, why should we take a step backwards here? Well, I think you're right. You know, we've all seen the, the, the big thinkers talk, well, here's the future, here's what it's going to be. Yeah. And I think we all thought, you know, oh, yeah, that's, that's 50 years away. And, oh, my goodness, we talked to 70s, think of 2010. Like, 
could this could this have worked in 2010? Well, maybe a little bit, but not nearly as successful. It's only because we have phenomenal technology now that does make it work so seamlessly. Like I'm dialing today on on a very cool Zoom platform. Um, and you know what? It's almost like I'd be in the office or in the studio with you. That is seamless. This wouldn't have been that way 10 years ago. I can think of listening to the radio 10 years ago. You can tell when someone's on the phone. But oh, now sure. it is seamless. This uh, We weren't here 10 years ago. And it's because we have a technology and now we're so technology proficient. It's seamless. Our, everyone is that way. That That's what makes it work so well. But then there is that. You can still be very connected with technology, but still be very separated on the people piece. It's that people piece that you make sure you're, you're reaching out now. Think of how many managers have not had a career conversation with one of their people because they haven't seen them face-to-face for three years. And that's a real concern. Are you, are you investing time in your people because they want to know there is a future with you? And if you're sort of relaxing and thinking, oh, you know what? I talk to them once a week. I talk to them on Zoom for 15 minutes. We used to see each other for hours and hours every week. You knew a lot more before. But are leaders actually investing time in their people so that they know if you're going to work remote and be remote, you have just as strong a future for progression and for promotion as someone who's in the office? Because the other side of that, though, that I, I mean, the realistic side is, you know, that they talk about that personal, that human relationship and, you know, being with other people uh, in a lot of workplaces, you're in your own little cubicle and you don't see anybody else all day long. You certainly don't see your manager more than once or twice a week, maybe. Uh, so is it is it really as isolated as we think it was or is it just a different form of workplace? Uh, because we've already been exposed to that. It was just within their four walls. Well, you know, it's a, you think of all the conversations you have in the hallway or in the lunchroom or at the water cooler. I think we used to brush those off as being wasted time or trivia. I think now when we look back on all the amazing connections that we made with people at the water cooler and the conversations that we had, I think now leaders think, you know what, that was very, very valuable. Or at the time, we maybe thought, stop wasting time doing that. Now we're looking back thinking, oh, those were fantastic times. Those fantastic connections that we made. Those relationships are stronger when we had those. So now the fact that, you know, if we're not going to see each other face to face, we at least need to talk to each other sometimes for just a meaningless conversation for 10 minutes in the morning just to have that same level of connection. We're missing that randomness that really made us strong that we sometimes neglected three or four or five years ago. Okay, we're just about out of time, but I got to ask you the the final question here, which I think puts this into context. Uh, apparently, everybody's going to have to have that conversation at some point, Michael, between employer and employee. Uh, would you think the best way to do this is it for the company to set a policy, uh, whether it's going to be hybrid work or whatever, and simply say this is the way it is, uh, it, not like it or lump it, but I mean this is our policy. You must adhere to this, you know, whether it's two days in, three days in, or do you sit down and have a discussion with the employees? And, and develop a, a, not a one-size-fits-all, but a, a flexible policy that uh, employee A might be working three days a week. The other one might be one day a week or maybe totally remotely. Uh, can companies be that flexible and, and, and that open to, to those sorts of new ideas? I think each company is unique. And I think if you're trying to attract the very best people, you need to have a fairly flexible one-on-one conversation with each person on what is going to provide them the environment 
that they can live a very full, very productive, and very consequential work life and personal life and produce at a very high level. It's not going to be sort of a, a cookie cutter, same for everybody, but then also provide meaningful reasons to come to the workspace. So whether it's going to be we're bringing in a speaker or we're going to have a meeting, a real purpose to come together so that we still use our remote, our hybrid work scenario, working from home. But there then is a reason the company brings us together for occasional reasons to be together or the office provides me an, an area to do this that's really, really strong. I think companies that can that are going to be able to succeed are going to be able to walk that fine line between work when you can, work how often you can, give us the 40 or the 37 and a half hours in a very in a very uh, flexible environment, coordinate with your team, collaborate with your team, but then give us very high results. And we'll be in the office, you know, we're all going to meet in the office uh, in three weeks on the Thursday, we're going to have lunch and bring a speaker in. I think that's going to be a very, very successful workplace. I, I just email I just got as you were mentioning that I think maybe underscores that uh, it's from Jason one of our listeners at uh, bkli900chml.com says I've been working remotely for two and a half years now if they're going to make me come back in can I take my dog I'm used to my dog <laughs> which which means everybody's changed now and, and you're going to have to have that conversation because everybody's going to have a different story aren't they well funny you mentioned dog we had dog conversation this morning with one of my colleagues who in the office today they her dog's at home but she got her dog right before COVID and we're actually seeing how now our condo builds, your houses, they're full of dogs. There's dogs everywhere. So yeah, yeah you know what? Dogs are now a, a piece of the office. And you know, there's always dogs. And you, you think of all those cool tech companies and the warehouses, they always seem to have dogs around. But now everyone has a dog. So yeah, you know, dogs are dogs are now part of it. How do we deal with the dogs? When, uh, these are not rhetorical questions, people. This is this is this is serious stuff that needs to be addressed. Michael, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for our conversation today. Bill, thanks for having me. It's always great being on. Take care. Michael French, National Director for Robert Half Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.